American stories, and we love going on road trips because Americans love road trips. And when we're on those trips, we talk to people across this great, beautiful country. And we sent some of our team on a tour of the South not long ago, and on that trip, they found themselves at the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Take it away, Faith. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Coca-Cola. As American as apple pie. It began with a flavored syrup combined with carbonated water that was invented by Atlanta druggist John S. Pemberton in 1886. It has gone on to become one of the most beloved refreshments of the modern world. Coca-Cola's popularity declined for years until a businessman named Asa Griggs Candler took over the business following Pemberton's death in 1888. But it wasn't the soda fountain drink that really got it going. It was the ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And the first bottling of Coca-Cola didn't happen until eight years later with a German immigrant family. My name is Nancy Bell, and I am the executive director of the Vicksburg Foundation for Historic Preservation. And this is the Beanhorn Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. This is where Coca-Cola was first bottled anywhere in the world in 1894. This building was built in 1890, and this is where the Biedenhorns had a candy store. They also made cakes. They did all kinds of things. They bottled their own soda water. It was a strawberry flavor, and so, of course, they had their own bottles with Biedenhorn Candy Company on them in which they bottled that. Um, they operated a soda fountain. And in the soda fountain, of course, there were a variety of flavors. Um, there were literally hundreds of flavors of drinks in those days. And so, you know, Mr. Biedenhorn had, had a selection of drinks other than his own. If you wanted his, he, as I said, had his own bottles. And so he would put his, his drink in, the, in a bottle and then um, bottle up a case of it. He'd send it uh, out to your location if you wanted to. They bottled for half a day and then they would deliver for the other half of the day. They came from Germany um, to, to Vicksburg uh, by way of New Orleans, I believe, and um, they were candy makers. And so they had their, they made candy in their little, little shop. And then, you know, eventually they added, just like most entrepreneurs, you know, they added more things to it. And they looked, um, I think they, they looked to the future and they saw, okay, people are doing um, soda fountains. You know, soda fountains became more and more, and so they, they included that into their, they were baking cakes, they were doing, and then, oh, wow, yeah, we can bottle our own now, you know. I, I think they were just good entrepreneurs. I think they were just um, um, smart and not... Um, thinking about the present, they were looking to the future. And I'm not sure the Coca-Cola company was doing that at that time. They were saying that, yeah, we're, we're distributing in the Southeast, and yes, we're, we're getting others to do it for us too, and um, our money, though, is, is in soda fountains. That's where it is. I don't think they thought really ahead of that because they were in Atlanta and because they were in an urban area, and they, you know, I think that made a difference too. 
as opposed to Ms. Bighorn. And while I said Vicksburg was the biggest city in the state at that time, we still were, were, were very rural as well. I mean, he would deliver to picnics. You know, I mean, you know, we're, ha we're having a picnic out here with, you know, 50 people. Can you deliver? Yeah, heck yeah. So as time went on, um, people became really uh, more a fan of Coca-Cola than of Mr. Beatenhorn's flavor. And they wanted to know why they couldn't get Coca-Cola also. Why, why could they only get his flavor in a bottle and not Coca-Cola in a bottle? Because, you know, when you came in, you came to a soda fountain, big, beautiful soda fountain, and you got it in a really pretty little glass, but at the end, you left the, the glass, you couldn't take the Coca-Cola with you. So, so many people asked that he um, decided that he would bottle some Coca-Cola. He bottled it in his own bottles. He bottled up a case, he sent it to Atlanta to ask for permission. And they said, yeah, you can bottle if you want to. Won't amount to anything, but if you want to do it, go ahead. And of course, that's really what launched Coca-Cola, was that ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Soda fountains were the thing of the day. Um, they were, you know, the places you went, they competed with each other to make bigger, more elaborate, all of that. So I think the Coca-Cola company didn't see past that. The Beanhorns, um, you know, continued to make candy. They continued to um, operate their soda fountains. And then when they found that Coca-Cola was really where they could make more money, um, then they built other buildings and started, of course, wholesale distributing of, of Coca-Cola in this area. Um, they did not have a contract at that time with Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola, of course, knew that they were doing this. In 1902, Coca-Cola signed with Chattanooga as the very first actual contract, you know, um, and at that time they said, now you can have these areas, but you can't have any areas that Mr. Beadenhorn is already bottling in. So of course they recognized what he was doing. And then they ended up with the contract with him um, for different areas. Nowadays we can get soda anytime we want. We simply go to the store and pick up some bottles or cans of Coke. But this process of bottling was no easy task when it first began. We have a reproduction of the bottling works that was first used to bottle Coca-Cola. So what we forget is, while yes, you could go down to the store and buy um, carbonated water, it, you didn't buy it in tremendous amounts. So it really made a lot more sense to make your own carbonated water. So you had to use marble chips, you had to use acid, you had to, you know, you had to, to drop the marble chips into the acid and then rotate it carefully. And then that would roll into another container where there was water and then you slowly rocked that until it was incorporated into the, the water and, and all of that. So first you had to do that. And then you had to um, take the syrup was in a large container up high and that would flow into your bottle X amount and then, the, then you filled it with the carbonated water. And then of course you still had to put, early on you had to do the rubber stopper with the wire. Um, these people would wear um, big, heavy leather jackets, wooden shoes, big um, leather gloves, and a mask because they blew up occasionally. So it was not necessarily you know, the safest occupation. In 1915, the Coca-Cola Company decided that they needed a bottle that was their own, their own bottle. Because um, all by then, of course, there were plenty of bottlers, but they were all using their own bottles. And so the Coca-Cola company had a contest, essentially, where they said, 
We want a design that if you take that bottle and you throw it on the, the ground, it breaks into 100 pieces. Any piece you pick up, you're still gonna know it's a Coca-Cola bottle. And if you think about it, and you think about that, that, that hobble skirt bottle that has the ridges down the side and all of it, even if you don't pick up the piece that has Coca-Cola on it, um, you would still recognize it as a Coca-Cola bottle. So the company that won was the Root Company. That Root bottle then became the, the Coca-Cola bottle, or the hobble skirt bottle that we call it. Some people call it the Mae West bottle because it's got that shape of Mae West, or at least part of her anyway. Uh, but, so it's, um, but it's a great bottle and uh, used, of course, for, for still used today. Now in 1994, they took that bottle, which they had been using over and over and over and over again. They made it a throwaway bottle and they made it an eight ounce bottle instead of a six and a half ounce bottle. But, you know, today we still sell the little bottles that look like, you know, the six and a half ounce bottles. And when we come back more of this remarkable story, the Coca-Cola story, Vicksburg's story, and by the way, we know Vicksburg mostly from this gigantic and important Civil War battle back in the 1860s. But for me, as a gigantic Coca-Cola fan, I know Vicksburg for that bottle that we were just talking about that I'm holding in my hand and my favorite thing to drink in the world. When we come back, the story of the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. More after these messages. American stories and we've been listening to the story of how Coca-Cola came to be and we've been hearing from Nancy Bell, the executive director for the historic preservation in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And by the way, you'll hear from us often floating out into the country and talking to these great little museums, uh, historical keepers of all kinds of things from those great museums in Philadelphia about our nation's history straight through to the well, the Mascot Hall of Fame and the Toaster Museum, there are places around this country we cover and want to cover. And now back to the story and back to Nancy Bell. All right, the, we have a, a large collection of bottles and they, they run from, you know, 1886 to, um, to the current day. Um, and uh, we unfortunately we don't have all of them um, because there are literally thousands of them. So people will come in and they'll look at our collection and they'll say, oh, well, you don't have such and such. And then, you know, I'll just have to send it to you. And most of the time they do. It's fast. It's just great, you know, to get a box and go, well, they really did do that once they got back home. Um, and so we have a Harry Potter bottle, which is one of my favorites. Um, so it's from England. Um, but the Paris, France ones are actually not glass. They're aluminum, but they're pink and white and they're just cool. Um, so we have lots of sports teams. We have lots of anniversaries of um, cities and states and counties and things like that. Um, we, have, um, we, we have a whole lot from across the world. All around the store and museum, there are tons of old fashioned advertisements. A lot of what they have has come from donation. Some of Nancy's favorites are the ads from World War II. 
They seem to capture that wholesome Americana feeling that is so associated with Coca-Cola. Some of my most favorite advertisements, and advertisements are something that we deal with a lot here, um, is the, the advertisements that have to do with World War II. Um, because, of course, they ship tons and tons of Cokes over um, to Europe and to, to Asia. And, you know, to, it, was, it was kind of a feel-good thing, you know, for them. And, of course, if you look at the advertising for Coca-Cola, it is feel-good advertising. I mean, it is wholesome. It is, ha you know. Um, and so, uh, to me, the World War II ads are just great. It's, there's one that says, like, he's coming home tomorrow. You know, it's, it, I'm going to get my Coca-Colas ready, you know, <laughs> my, my husband's coming home tomorrow, but it was, so it was feel-good advertising. So in, um, so by World War II, of course, they were already shipping lots of stuff over there. It was already a part of the culture of other countries. Um, and the, and of course, you see even in the advertise some other advertising that they did, they would highlight other countries where they were selling that. Coca-Cola had become something that was uniquely patriotic. It's sold everywhere, but what about it makes it so American? Coca-Cola is the best known icon. And it is the best known icon. It, is made, it was made in America. And so to me, that's what makes it, you know, American, is that it is a tremendous American story. It is this pharmacist who literally was dying and you know he's searching for a medicine or whatever he invents the world's most popular most recognized drink and um, unfortunately dies before he can see it you know become something very you know huge <laughs> it's a piece of home that's very very easy for someone to recognize when you're in a different country um, and while those, some of those flavors later on became a different flavor, because if you've gone to the Coca-Cola plant, you know, in Atlanta, if you've gone to their museum, um, they give you some tastes of, of Coca-Cola from other countries, and they're different. Part of that's the water, part of that's just what makes, what, what they enjoy. But if you're, if you are a serviceman in wherever in, on earth, and you get a Coca-Cola, it's coming from the United States, and it's going to taste like home. That's what you know it to be. So to me, that makes it, you know, that makes it America. It is a wholesome American drink, but Coca-Cola had a little bit of a sketchy background. And in talking about the wholesome thing, then you, of course, get into the whole, the whole um, discussion about cocaine and whether there was cocaine in Coca-Cola. And, um, you know, as I said, one of the biggest things about them was that they believed it to be a wholesome product. And uh, it did have cocaine in it. And um, so it was, if you can't get away from it, it's the coca leaf and the cola nut, and that's how you get Coca-Cola. So it had, did have cocaine. They maintain it had a trace of cocaine, that it did not have much, just a trace. And, of course, it had a tremendous amount of caffeine. So, you know, that probably uh, it was a part of it as well. However, they, they were you know, petitioned some by um, parents who didn't like that in there. It was, while it wasn't a new drug, because of course Indians had had it for thousands of years, it was really new to the, you know, the, the population of the United States. But it, they had thought it might help your stomach, they thought it might help you on all these things. 
They put it in gum. They put it in all kinds of things. So it was not, you know, just in this. Um, and so Mr. Well, Dr. Pemberton, who developed it, he was ill. He was also addicted to another drug. And so he was really kind of looking for something else to help him. And so that's one reason why he included it. Plus, he did a lot of research with the Indians and found that, well, maybe this will help, you know, whatever. Well, when it was, when he passed away and it became, um, the, the ownership became um, under someone else, it was under Mr. Candler, then Candler didn't like this. He didn't like it being called dope. He didn't like, I mean, he wanted it to be a wholesome thing. And so in 1903, he took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Now, he, the coca leaf is still in there because they just decocainized it because the coca leaf is something that gives the flavor to Coca-Cola. So, but he did take it out and, and took full page ads saying, you know, I took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Oh yeah, there was only a trace amount of cocaine. And, and, and for a while he was even saying it wasn't there, but there was a lawsuit and he kind of had to say it in court. And so, you know, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, it's out there. Yeah. But, um, and, and if you look at the ingredients early on, I mean, it's very obvious, but um, so he, yes, he, he was very proud of the fact that, you know, he had, because he wanted it to be a wholesome thing. It's a family drink, you know, okay. it's not alcohol. And that was one reason why I didn't want the, you know, the cocaine in there. It's not alcohol, it's, it's something that's, that is, um, I can't say that it's necessarily good for you, but it's not bad for you. Um, and so it's something, yes, that is, is um, clear, clean, good ingredients, um, nothing bad in there that's gonna, you know, they're gonna harm you. And um, the advertising was families and, you know, good situations and, you know, um, happy events, um, a woman swimming, you know. I mean, it was, it was um, actually more of those type of outdoor events and things like that than early on it was like sitting at a bar, not a bar bar, but you know, one of our bars like a soda fountain and drinking it, but, but lots more of the outdoor type atmosphere things going on, family events, things like that. And we have a, it's very hard to read, but we have the handwritten um, ingredients that were first in, in 1886. Um, and of course it has sugar, it had caffeine, it had the, the coca leaf, the cola nut, um, caramel flavoring. Um, I mean, it's just a whole list of things. And, and that's, you know, who knows how much of this and how much of that Pemberton ended up, you know, doing. But when Mr. Candler got it, he said there were entirely too many ingredients. You know, it was just, it was hard to, to put all of that together and, um, and did we really need all those ingredients to come up with this really good taste. Now, how he worked that out, I have no idea. But apparently he did take some things out. And um, so, you know, today you can read the ingredients. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. I mean, it's, it's um, without cocaine, of course. But it changed then. I think it's probably changed a little bit through time. In the 1980s, of course, they went from cane sugar to corn syrup, which to me changed the taste. You can still get Mexican Cokes, which we sell here, that, that have cane sugar in it. To me, that's what it's supposed to taste like. Coke has a bright flavor, a distinctive flavor, all its own, that has never been equaled. It's bracing, too. Coca-Cola gives you a bit of quick energy that brings you back so refreshed so quickly and with as few calories as half an average juicy grapefruit. Stop at the fountain where Coke is served. Then you can relax with the most asked for soft drink in the whole world, bright and bracing Coca-Cola. 
Give yourself a break. Have a Coke. Well, that's enough for today. Now for a lively lift. Ice-cold Coca-Cola. There's no waistline worry with Coke, you know. Mmm, another thing, the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. As you can hear from the old-fashioned commercial, it was thought that Coke could even be good for you. Many people would disagree today, but the wholesome, home-filled flavor of Coke perhaps does more for the soul than for the body. And that's the cool thing, is, you know, that people come in and they're like, I mean, they love Coke. I mean, they just, that's just a part of, you know, my, my grandmother, I mean, she was 90 years old. She still wanted to have her little Cokes, you know. I mean, it was, it was something that was very, very important to her. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Faith. And by the way, I think of bright and bracing all the time when I drink my Coke, and it's a lively lift still for me. And as Jesse and I completely agree and we're nodding during the piece, that cane sugar and those Mexican Cokes, that's the real deal. That they're available now all over the United States. Well, it's just such a blessing. And we're a bunch of Coke addicts here, and I'm chief addict. Addict in chief here at Our American Stories. The Coca-Cola story, a classic American story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for an American classic science fiction TV series that set the standard for all others that would come after it. Here's Jesse. The Twilight Zone is some of the best science fiction ever written. Created, produced, and narrated by Rod Serling, the series was shot in black and white for 156 episodes between 1959 and 1964. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. At a time when television viewers were familiar with standards like Leave it to Beaver, The Lone Ranger, and I Love Lucy, The Twilight Zone was a dark psychological thriller mixing fantasy with suspense in the dark hours of the night. My name is Talking Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Talkie Tina, and I don't think I like you. My name is Talkie Tina, and I think I could even hate you. After graduating high school in 1943, Rod Serling began his military career, serving in the 11th Airborne Division in World War II. Nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. It influenced much of his writing. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy. Get it out of my gut, write it down. This is the way it began for me, because I came back with 11 million other guys who had very similar problems. So it was not unique, nor was it not to be expected. We, were, we had very special problems that we were going to write about. He was face to face with death, 
every day, and he used the unpredictability of death in his writing. I can't conceive of anybody not falling into this pattern who writes, has certain special loves, certain special hang-ups, certain special preoccupations and predilections. In my case, it's a hunger to be young again, a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running thread through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to have the capacity to convey that kind of hunger, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. Throughout the 1950s, Rod Serling established himself as one of the most popular names in television. He was also famous for criticizing the motives of other television writers at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Will they understand it in New Orleans? And consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward to, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. Because I am writing in an art form, the whole function of the art form is to be translated to other people. There's a, a, an emotional experience to be shared. Consequently, it isn't just me and my tower. It's how people will react to what I write. Serling began his professional writing career in 1950, earning $75 a week as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the winter of 52, he gave up the security of his paying job to take a chance at freelance television writing. He dropped everything and moved his wife and kids to New York. The immediate motive at the time, the prodding thing that pushed me into it, was that I'd been writing for a Cincinnati television station as a staff writer, which is a particularly dreamless occupation composed of doing commercials. As I recall, there was a, uh, a drug, a liquid drug on the market at the time that uh, could cure everything from arthritis to a fractured pelvis. And I actually had to write testimonial letters. And on that particular day, I just had it. And though I had been freelancing concurrent with the staff job, the best year I'd ever had, I think we netted about $700 which is hardly even grocery money. And that one night, we just decided to, you know, sink or swim and go into it. When television was new, shows aired live. But as studios began to tape their shows, the business moved from the East Coast to the West. The same companies who sponsored the shows were often involved in editing and censoring the programs as they saw fit in order to protect their brands from what they considered to be controversial subject matter, situations, or competing product placement. And now, Mr. Serling. This cigarette gives all the advantages of extra length and much more. The great taste of 21 vintage tobaccos grown mild, aged mild, and blended mild. Serling was often forced to change his scripts after corporate sponsors found something they didn't like. He soon realized that the only way to mitigate such drastic sponsor influence was to create his own show. We have what I think, at least, uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. We're in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama. I'm the judge, because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it, I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years, and the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. Serling was demanding a new kind of relationship with the advertiser. 
one that protected both the integrity of the program and the dollar of the advertiser. Rod Serling felt so strongly about protecting his content that he produced videos for companies that were interested in buying time on his show. He was making it clear that he was in charge and that content was king. You gentlemen, of course, know how to push a product. That essentially is your job. My presence here is for much the same purpose, simply to push a product. To acquaint you with an entertainment product which we hope and which we rather expect will make your product pushing that much easier. What you're about to see, gentlemen, is a series called The Twilight Zone. We think it's a rather special kind of series. Essentially, people watch television to get entertained. And the keynote of this series, the thing we're concerned with, the thing we're aiming for, the thing we're working toward is entertainment. This is a series for the storyteller. Because it's our thinking that an audience will always sit still and listen and watch a well-told story. When we return, the story of the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling continues right here on Our American Stories. stories and by the way go to our american network to hear all that we do that's our american network.org and now we return to the story of rod serling and the twilight zone here's jesse when serling submitted a script called the time element to cbs as the pilot for the twilight zone cbs used the script for another show the westinghouse desilu playhouse in 1958 westinghouse first with the future presents the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're going to see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. Our story begins in a doctor's office. A patient is sitting there. He walked into this office nine minutes ago. This would have been the original premiere episode of The Twilight Zone. The story concerns a man who has vivid nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor and decides to visit a psychiatrist. Can you tell me in one simple statement whether or not I'm off my rocker? Without dragging in Sigmund Freud and a lot of medical school English, can you tell me what's wrong with me? I can try. Well, I keep having this dream. I... 
I've had it, I don't know, five or six times now. What sort of dream? A real one. Did you ever have any wacky dreams that seemed real? Oh, sure. I guess we all have. But have they happened over and over again? Recurred. Same dream. The same dream. Identical. It doesn't change. The twist ending reveals that the patient had died at Pearl Harbor and that the psychiatrist was actually the one having the vivid dreams. Yes, sir. Bourbon on the rocks. Something wrong? Uh, no. Who's the guy in the picture? Oh, him? No, the, uh, the other picture. Oh, that's Pete Jensen. He used to tend by here. No? Jensen? No. Just look familiar, that's all. Where is he now? He's dead. He was killed at Pearl Harbor. The episode received so much positive fan response that CBS greenlit The Twilight Zone, which officially premiered the night of October 2nd, 1959. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the Twilight Zone. A man suffering from amnesia wanders through a small town, desperately searching for people until it drives him mad. Please, somebody help me! Somebody's looking at me! Somebody's watching me! Help me! Please, help me! Help me! Help me! Unaware that he's part of a secret military experiment gone terribly wrong. What happened to him is that he cracked. Delusions of some kind, we assume. But let me tell you all something, gentlemen. If any one of you were confined in a box five feet square for two and a half weeks, all by your lonesome, without hearing a human voice other than your own, I'll give you especially good odds that your imagination would run away with you too. For Rod Serling, the horrors that he experienced in World War II were always a motivating factor when it came to writing scripts. His ideas, however, came from a different place. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. Then the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. From a series of student talks recorded at Ithaca College in 1972, Rod Serling shared his philosophies on writing and storytelling. The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites and, and if it doesn't satisfy, uh, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. 
It must take the various character traits of the individuals involved in your story and make them do something or react to something as their nature dictates. This is to say that, for example, if you're dealing with a Quaker pacifist who is constantly being beaten around the head by the neighborhood bully and who suddenly at one given moment in, in his life says, I will not turn my cheek again, I will hit back, and does so, you must, have, you must absolutely believe that there is a moment when a man will turn his back on a fundamental belief and do something foreign to his nature. Or the reverse is true. You can show a bully who all his life has stepped on people, who does it out of a sense of sheer cruelty, who has no sense of the value of the dignity of other human beings or the feelings of other human beings, and in a given moment in time put into a position where he has a chance to save someone he couldn't care less about, but literally risks his life to do so. There must be a reason he does it and a believable explanation as to why he does it and the fact that you believe that he does it. This is the sort of thing you must do. The Twilight Zone won two Emmys and a Golden Globe, but even though the show had loyal fans, ratings were down. After five years and 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling, he was done with the show. In 1964, he decided not to oppose its cancellation sold the rights to CBS. I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. But very often, one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my forth than, than plot, dialogue. If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written, and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking, because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now, that's wrong. And it's something I've got to lick over the years, but it's a, the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialogists. On May 3rd of 1975, he had a minor heart attack and was hospitalized. A second heart attack two weeks later puts him in the hospital for open-heart surgery. After 10 hours on the operating table, Serling suffered a third heart attack and died two days later. He was 50 years old. A symbol of a sad but rather commonplace event. An impressive funeral the deceased laid out in the most acceptable manner. But in this case, at the last moment, deciding that in matters concerning the trip to the great beyond, perhaps this trip wasn't necessary. Very often when you write for a living, you run across blocks, moments when you can't think of the right thing to say. Now happily, there are no blocks to get in the way of the full pleasure of Chesterfield. Great tobaccos make it a wonderful smoke. Try them, they satisfy. Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And it's just so interesting to hear from the artists themselves and to hear, well, to hear him talk about his World War II experience. And before there was PTSD diagnoses, they called it shell shock, but nobody came back for therapy. I mean, you just, you basically had to suck it up. And he channeled all that, well, well all that nightmarish. Uh, activity that he'd witnessed and all the nightmares he experienced after into creativity and channeled it into this remarkable art. 
And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. I mean, uh, my favorite of the recent past months, we get to hear from Orson Welles himself, talking about his life, his creative life, mistakes made, uh, ambitions. Again, this is what we do here every day on Our American Stories. From their voices to your ears, we try to stay out of the way, and we try to just keep it as real as possible, as authentic as possible. And these American stories, well, they come from every possible type of American And this was one of the most creative Americans. And by the way, that he had to sell his franchise back to CBS. The very people who probably were skeptical about his work in the first place. My goodness, that just hurt me to hear personally. This is Lee Habib, Rod Serling's story, the Twilight Zone story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll produce them, and we'll put them right back up, because your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. Robert Frost continues to be one of America's most celebrated poets. He died on this day in history in 1963. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. He was born in San Francisco, the son of Scottish and English immigrants. Honored frequently in his lifetime, he is only one of four individuals to have also won four Pulitzer Prizes for his poetry collections. You will hear the voice of the author himself reading a few of his most popular works. The Road Not Taken was published in 1916 as the first poem in his third collection, Mountain Interval. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Next up is Birches. It was another popular poem from Robert Frost. It was also included in his Mountain Interval collection. It first appeared in Atlantic Monthly in the August issue of 1915. When I see birches bent to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay as ice storms do. Often you must have seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many-colored. 
as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust. Such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They are dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break. Though once they're bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterward, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. But I was going to say, when truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have had some boy bend them as he went out or in to fetch the cows, some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again, until he took the stiffness out of them, and not one but hung limp. Not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon, and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully, with the same pains you used to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, and so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations, and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while, and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. My goodness. Lucky us. Mending Wall opened Robert Frost's second collection of poetry, North of Boston. Published in 1914, the poem is about the narrator and his neighbor, who both work every year to mend the wall along their property line. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps I mean, no one has seen them made or, or heard them made, but at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. To each the boulders that have fallen to each, and some are lows and some so nearly balls, we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. 
Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall, he is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones on these pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows, but here there are no cows? Before I build a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say else to him, but, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only, in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. On January 29, 1963, Robert Frost died in Boston due to complications from prostate surgery. He was buried at the old Bennington Cemetery in Bennington, Vermont, The epitaph engraved on his tomb is the last line from his poem, The Lessons for Today. And it reads, quote, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. And my goodness, this is the kind of poetry that, well, brings people to literature. In the end, Shakespeare, Homer, all of it so beautiful and bold. This is just human stuff. And that's why we focus on works like this, folks. And what a voice, what a read. How lucky we are to have had his poetry. How lucky we are to be able to hear it still. And again, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And you can go there to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Their latest on C.S. Lewis, perhaps the greatest theologian and writer on all things Christian is just remarkable. Go to hillsdale.edu. The courses are free. And what they're worth for the family, for homeschoolers, for people who have been to college but never really learned the stuff that matters, it's all there at hillsdale.edu. This is Lee Habib, Robert Frost's story, in his own words, here on Our American Story. American stories, and from time to time, our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good, so spiritually good, that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes, and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment. Join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art. 
Cairo, Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3,800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop from a single mother and Renee Zellweger you had me at hello hi this is Jesse Edwards for our American stories and what you just heard is it's completely true uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? 
I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. And I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So, um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So, um, yeah, over 14,000 copies. We, we, hope to, we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour, and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest, 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie, and where did they even come from? So the Jerry Maguire's, was, it was really just the, uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media, I think. The, they're there are many, many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for, for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture, um, we are working with a team of uh, engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and and towns and whatnot, so so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to, to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. 
<laughs> is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, we've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and, and it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the pyramid, we're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's. And uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into the into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry McGuire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything that's terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, and they come back. And then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer. A.K.A. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page for our American stories and Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. <laughs> A lot more of them. <laughs>